Now, our Bible reading this morning is continuing our short series in the book of Deuteronomy. We are on Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're going to read verses uh, 1 to 8, uh, and then uh, verse 25 through to chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, and Don, Don is going to read that for us today. Listen, O Israel. Today, you're about to cross the Jordan River to take over the land belonging to nations much greater and more powerful than you. They live in cities with walls that reach to the sky. The people are strong and tall, descendants of the famous Anakite giants. You've heard the saying, who can stand up to the Anakites? But recognize today that the Lord your God is the one who will cross over ahead of you like a devouring fire to destroy them. He will subdue them so that you will quickly conquer them and drive them out, just as the Lord has promised. After the Lord your God has done this for you, don't say in your hearts, the Lord has given this land because we are such good people. No, it's because of the wickedness of the other nations that he's pushing them out of your way. It's not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. Remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord your God out in the wilderness From the day you left Egypt until now, you have been constantly rebelling against him. Even at Mount Sinai, you made the Lord so angry, he was ready to destroy you. In the ensuing verses, Moses demonstrates how the Israelites have rebelled against the Lord, and we take the reading up again in verse 25. That is why I threw myself down before the Lord for 40 days and nights, for the Lord said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, do not destroy them. They are your own people. They are your special possession, whom you redeemed from Egypt by your mighty power and your strong hand. Please overlook the stubbornness and the awful sin of these people, and remember instead your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you destroy these people, the Egyptians will say, The Israelites died because the Lord wasn't able to bring them to the land he had promised to give them. Or they might say, he destroyed them because he hated them. He deliberately took them into the wilderness to slaughter them. But they are your people and your special possession whom you brought out of Egypt by your great strength and powerful arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. Thanks be to God. Now, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy. So, if you have your Bible there, please do turn back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and just into chapter 10 uh, this morning. Now, a couple of weeks ago we started our series in this book and we find ourselves in uh, chapter 8. And just a a reminder uh, as to the context here. Because the people of Israel, having escaped Egypt by the power of God and having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, are now on the east side of the River Jordan. And they are about finally to enter into the promised land. And Moses, who has led them all these 40 years, will not be going with them. 
He's a very old man by this point, uh, and uh, he uses this opportunity just before they go into the promised land to speak to the Israelites and to remind them of a few things. And most notably, he reminds them of the law and what God requires of the people. And hence, uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the word Deuteronomy uh, means second law because it's a second telling uh, of the law. Now, this morning I want to look at uh, three things uh, from our passage. Uh, first, the promise of God. Second, the total depravity of humankind. And third, the irresistible and amazing grace of God. All right? Now, this is one of these sermons this morning. You just got to stick with it. All right? It's going to be bad for quite a while. It'll come good at the end. All right? So please stick with it this morning. We need to go through the bad stuff to get to the good stuff at the end. Now, firstly, the promise of God. So here are the Israelites on the cusp of the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a fertile land. And it's a land that uh, belonged to nations more powerful than uh, the Israelites, people who are uh, far greater, people like uh, the Anakites, uh, who were known as, as giants. It's a, bit, it's a bit like us Scots uh, going to Holland or something. And, the, you know, Dutch people are massive. They are huge. The average height is 6'2 or something. And uh, we think, oh, goodness, we can never take them on. Israel are going to come into, into this land. Now, remember that one of the reasons that the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for so long is because they were initially meant to go in and go into the promised land, but they took fright because the people were too big and too powerful, and they thought that they had no chance against them. I remember when I played rugby at school a number of years ago now, and you used to, used to go somewhere to play rugby, and you, you were training at one side or just warming up at one end, and the other team were warming up at the other, and you were trying to do your warm-up, but you were having a little sneaky peek over, and you were looking at the other team, and you were kind of whispering among us, they are massive, they are huge. They're only fifth year at school and they've got beards already. This is crazy. How are we meant to beat them? And that's what Israel were like. They said, we cannot beat these people. They just saw the obstacle that was in front of them. They didn't understand that the Lord was with them. But now, 40 years later, pretty much nothing has changed. The, the, the nations in the land are still more powerful than the Israelites. But the difference is that the Lord will be with them. And the Lord will go ahead of them like a devouring fire. And he will give them the land like he has promised. Now a couple of things here. The first thing is that God has promised. God has promised. And God's promises are irrevocable. God is always true to his promises. And he's unlike us in, in that regard, because, of course, we can be guilty, can't we, of, of promising things and then not, not coming good on, on that promise, usually because we, we forget. So often we're in the house and I say to Anna, I'll just make you a cup of coffee. And then an hour later she'll say, hey, thanks for that cup of coffee that you didn't bring me. 
because they're just forgotten. But God is not like us. He remembers. And so the people going into the land is because God remembers his promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yes, the people have been 430 years in the land of Egypt and then 40 years in the wilderness. But God doesn't forget. He remembers. God is faithful and true to his promises. And therefore, when we read, for example, that Jesus will come again, that we read in the New Testament, we can trust that this will be true. When we read right at the end of Revelation that there'll be a time when, when God's people will be together forever with no more crying, tears, and pain, we can trust that this is true. God holds to his promises. Now, second, when we read this, as sometimes we do read the Old Testament, we might be concerned about the number of people who lose their lives. There is a lot of bloodshed in the Old Testament, isn't there? But let's not think that this is God being unfair, or God being unjust, or God being unloving or ungracious. As we see in verse 5, the people in the land are driven out, not arbitrarily, but because of their wickedness. Because God is a righteous judge. Now, there's a law, of course, isn't there, that we might not understand in the Old Testament about all the bloodshed that happens. But throughout, we are reminded that God is just, that God is fair, that He doesn't do what He does on a whim. And so we see the promise of God that He'll drive out the people in the land because of their wickedness. And the people will go in and possess the land because of the promise that God has made. Now, this point, I think, is important. It's interesting we're looking at this passage with all that's happening in Israel at this present time in Palestine. Let's not think that these two things equate. What happened in the New Testament? Well, it's now Christians who are children of Abraham. We don't have a land. Where is our land? Our land is a heavenly land. It's about heaven. So let's not look at the situation in Palestine and Israel and think it equates to what happens in in Deuteronomy. It's very much under a different dispensation. Now, the second thing I want to focus on this morning, now this is the depressing bit. This is the hard bit, all right? And it's the total depravity of the Israelites. You see, a couple of weeks ago, we thought about when the Israelites entered the land, that the Israelites were not to forget about the Lord when they got there. Because we recognize that this was a fine land. It's flowing with milk and honey. There's plenty of water and food, loads of resources. And when they go into that land, they're not to forget the Lord and think, oh, this is great. You know, this is just, you know, um, because of our goodness. This is because of, you know, we're amazing people. Uh, and we'll just forget the Lord. You see, the Lord makes it clear that it's because of the wickedness of the other nations that he's putting them out. And he's letting the Israelites into the land because of the promise that he has made. But it's also made quite clear here 
that the Lord is not giving the people of Israel the land because they are good. Because they are good. Because as verse 6 in our passage makes clear, the people of Israel are not good. They are a stubborn people. And then what we see from verse 7 onwards is examples of how the people of Israel have made the Lord angry. So Moses is not just saying, you know, you're not a great people here, but gives them no evidence. The next number of verses are all about how Israel has, has rebelled against the Lord and made the Lord angry. Indeed, as Moses says at the end of that verse, verse 7, from the day you left Egypt until now, you have constantly, been constantly rebelling against the Lord. And especially with the incident of the golden calf. When Moses was at Mount Sinai in, in the part that we didn't read this morning, and he was receiving the law, we, we see how quickly the people rebelled and fell into sin. They created this idol and began to worship it rather than worshiping the living God. Now, we might look at this this morning and think, this is pretty miserable. How can the people be so bad? Surely Moses is over-egging the pudding, so to speak. But the Lord has been on the cusp of, of destroying the people so many times because of their rebellion. Now, we shouldn't look at this and think that we are any better. Sometimes we can be guilty of that. Because the New Testament tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. Not even one. We all fall short of God's glory. We all fall short of God's perfect standards. John Calvin called it total depravity. Now, before we get too depressed or downcast or angry about this, remember, first of all, this is not the end of the story. We're not there yet. You see, all Moses is doing here is he's holding up a mirror and he's showing the Israelites who they are. And of course, we all like to think that we are better than we are, don't we? You see, sometimes we don't like to look in the mirror or see a photo of ourselves because we don't like to see the truth. That's true, isn't it? Who is that old man looking back at me from this mirror? And it can be the same in terms of our moral character. We most likely think of ourselves better than we are. We justify our failings to ourselves. We don't like to think of ourselves as being rebels and, and as sinners. But the reality is we must start at that point to see ourselves as we truly are if we are to move forward in faith. You see, what Moses is doing here is puncturing any thoughts of pride that the Israelites might have. Any thoughts that they, that they might have, that they, they deserve to be in the promised land. And we must come away from any kind of notion that we deserve to be in heaven with God on our own merit. Because the reality is we are all sinners falling short of God's glory, and we need to see ourselves as we are. Now, please note here, this has nothing to do with self-esteem. Nothing to do with self-esteem. You are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. What higher dignity could be bestowed upon you? 
But what we're talking about this morning is moral character. And Moses is pointing out the depravity and sin and stubbornness and rebellion of the Israelites. And the sobering thing is that we are no different. All these years later, we are no different. Now, I realize that's a somber message. But until we reach the end of ourselves and stop trusting in ourselves, until we're forced to ask the question, Lord, what must I do? What must I, if this is who I truly am, what, Lord, must I do? You see, if we haven't come to the end of ourselves, then we have no need for God and no need for a Savior. But if we look in the mirror and we see ourselves as we are, then we need to do something about it. I said that Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher in the 1800s, preached sin and sin and sin no apology to his congregation. But then when his congregation were, were weeping, weep at how bad we are, when they understood how bad they are, then he preached the love and grace of God. You see, this isn't about making us feel bad this morning. It's about knowing the reality and knowing the truth. You see, in our passage, we see the understanding, the total depravity of the Israelites, that Moses threw himself down before the Lord because the Lord said he would destroy the Israelites. And Moses implores that the Lord doesn't destroy them. And for 40 days and nights, he's before the Lord, imploring the Lord, don't destroy them. You are your, they are your special possession. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other nations will think you brought the Israelites out of Egypt to destroy them. And Moses reminds the Lord in verse 25, they are your people, your special possession, whom you brought out of Egypt by your great strength and powerful arm. In other words, Moses reminding the Lord of all that he has done. Now, that's not to say that the Lord has forgotten. The Lord doesn't forget. But oh, that we were to pray and intercede for others like Moses does for the Israelites here. Because Moses holds to the promise of God, holds to God's character, and he really cares for the people that he served as leader. There was one time when God said to Moses, Moses, I'll destroy everyone else and we'll just go with you. Now, Moses might have said, oh, brilliant. That's great. We'll just go with that. But he really cared for the people. Do we really care for the people around us in West Kilbride and Sea Mill and beyond? Do we intercede for them like Moses does? does? Do we pray with such fervor? as Moses does for those around us. In many ways, these are difficult truths this morning because we see that Moses really socks it to the Israelites. Read the whole chapter when you get old. It's depressing. He shows them who they are. Now, why is he doing that? He's doing that so that they won't have 
the misconception that they are good before God. When they understand all that they have done, all that they are, they can't but hold up their hands and say, guilty. And Moses spends all this time pointing out the Israelites' rebellion and sin, and the reality is that we are no different. But Moses doesn't leave the Israelites miserable. Did you notice that? He doesn't leave them miserable. And we shouldn't leave miserable today either. You see, if we had finished at the end of chapter 9 this morning, we would have left this place today miserable. Because we would have left in our sin and our misery, not knowing if God is going to destroy the Israelites or not, and wondering about ourselves. But then we come to chapter 10. What does it say in chapter 10? At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. You see, here are the Israelites. Time and time again, they have rebelled, they have sinned against the Lord. And when Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days to receive the law, comes down with the Ten Commandments and the two tablets of stone, the Israelites have already turned to idolatry with the golden calf. The people rebel. The Lord is angry. Moses intercedes. And what's the result? God gives them a second chance. God gives them a second chance. And that's what chapter 10, verse 1 is all about. It's about the irresistible grace of God, that despite everything, God gives people a second chance. And if you think about it, that is the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? You see, we as as humankind rebel. The Lord is angry. He cannot abide sin in His sight, and we need someone to intercede for us. We see Moses here interceding for the people, but we need someone who will intercede for us once and for all. And what's the New Testament all about? Well, God sent His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God gives us a second chance. He gives us a second chance because that's the kind of God that He is. And if you look at your Bible all the way through, you see these hints, these tokens of your grace. Adam and Eve in the garden who sinned against God. And yes, they're banished from the garden, but God still clothes them. The people of Israel, yes, they rebel against God. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Yet who's the one who feeds them? It's God. Who's the one who gives them water to drink? It's God. Tokens of God's grace all the way through. And for us, God gives us a second chance. He sends a Savior to pay for our sin. And when we turn from our sin, and when we turn to Jesus, He will bring us to a promised land, to heaven itself, where we will be with God forever. This is God's amazing love. It's His irresistible grace. You see, Charles Spurgeon also said in one of his sermons, famous quote, 
You're a great sinner. But Jesus is a greater Savior. And that's the reality, isn't it, this morning? So if you're here today and you think that you can earn heaven on your own merit, let that be punctured today. Moses spends this whole chapter puncturing the Israelites' self-righteousness, saying, look in the mirror, this is who you truly are. For us, that's who we are also. And yet, the amazing thing is that God still looks on us. He still cares for us. He sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us so, so much. You see, would God have allowed the Israelites to go into the promised land if he hadn't loved them? Of course he loved them. That's why he said to Moses, get two new stone tablets, chisel out them again, and let's go once more. I'm going to sing a song in just a, a moment or two, a hymn. I love this hymn. It's kind of a Christmassy hymn, but not really. Um, but we're going to sing it anyway. I cannot tell by he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men, or why a shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back. They know not how or when. But this I know, that he was born of Mary when Bethlehem's manger was his only home, and that he lived at Nazareth and labored, and so the Savior, Savior of the world is come. I cannot tell how silently he suffered, as with his peace he graced this place of tears, or how his heart upon the cross was broken, the crown of pain, to three and thirty years. But this I know, he heals the brokenhearted and stays our sin and calms our lurking fear and lifts the burden from the heavy laden. For yet the Savior, Savior of the world is here. Shall we just pray together? Let's pray. Loving Lord God, we thank you uh, that your word is true and it tells us the truth. And Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that just like the Israelites in the time of Moses, that we are rebels, that we are filled with sin, that so often we turn away from you. And though we are made in your image, that so often we fail to live up to that high calling. But Father, we thank you that Moses wanted to give the Israelites a bit of a reality check. And really the reality check was so that when the people went into the land, that they weren't filled with pride, that they didn't think that it was all about them. And Father, as we come before you this morning, we cannot come with pride. We cannot come on our own human merit before you. Because we recognize that we're all sinners who need your grace. But we thank you that in the, way, in the same way that Moses interceded for the Israelites, that we have the one who is the great high priest who intercedes on our behalf 
once and for all. The Lord Jesus, the one who paid the price at Calvary's hill, laying down his life that we might be set free. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God of second chances and third chances, that you are the God of forgiveness and grace. Because we recognize that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, then we're born again. The old life has gone and the new has come. You give us a second chance. Father, may we revel in your goodness and your irresistible grace this day. May we marvel at your amazing love. And may we know that we are loved with an everlasting love, that you care for us so, so much. So, Lord God, we pray that we would leave this place not miserable at our sin, but we would leave this place rejoicing that we have an amazing, a wonderful Savior in Jesus. For we pray these things in his strong name. Amen.